I had a kind of up and down day on Thursday. Anybody have an up and down day this past week where you were like, some good, some not so good? So I never get push notifications on my phone because I thought I shut them all off. Anybody in my camp? Yeah, push notifications are the worst. I randomly got a push notification for something I don't even think I subscribe to. It was a Worcester newspaper. I don't know, is this like a virus on my phone? I don't know how. But here's what I got. This past Thursday, it told me this story. Earlier this month, there was a young man named Luke. Luke is a 17-year-old um, teenager who came over from Brazil this past summer. And he's now living in Worcester with his family. And as it's getting in the time of year where it's getting colder, um, there was a local collection that was taken up and there were some donations. And he received a gently used winter coat. But the story, of course, it doesn't end there because that's not something to get a push notification when I'm sitting on my lunch break at work. So the story went on to tell that in this young man's coat, it's a very ordinary looking coat, and he appreciated it. He thought it was great, but he opened up the zipper, and out came $20,000 of jewelry. We're talking diamond rings, gold, all sorts of stuff. Now, what's amazing, again, if that was the entire story, on my lunch break, I wouldn't have heard about this with a random push notification that makes me think I have a virus on my phone. I hope not. Probably malware or something, right? Help me out. Why am I getting random push notifications? I don't know. Regardless, okay, he gets these $20,000 worth of jewelry. And immediately, he's on a mission not to find a pawn shop to give him the best deal, but to find the original owner of the coat. And in the age of the internet, this takes him about two days, and he gets the contents to this man. Now, this man, these, this jewelry was this man's widow, so he, 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 his wife died, and this was her jewelry. And she, he wasn't even aware it was in the coat, and tears came to his eyes, and he was incredibly touched by this young man just taking his time to find down, to track whose jewelry this was. And then, of course, from there, there was a new relationship. Now there was these two people that would have had nothing to do with each other. Now we're united. And now this young man, Luke, has a part-time job working for his new friend. Now I bring this up not just because it was a push notification I got on my phone, but because we live in a time, I don't know about you, but I, I often worry that we're in such a polarized, divided time where everybody's asking this question. Here's a problem we've got. In our society, everybody seems to be asking, what's in it for me? The human default is, what's in it for me? And I look at young people, and sometimes I get a little worried with all the TikTok stuff, right? With all, the, right? Help me out. The TikTok stuff. And I sit and I sit and say, like, I don't get it. It feels like more of what's in it for me. Look at me. I'm dancing. But... The truth is, that's probably just I'm getting old and I don't understand because the more I talk to people who are young, people who are in our Generation Z and younger, I'm hearing stories like the one from Luke. I'm hearing of these people who not, do not say what's in it for me, but say, hey, we're in life together and I want to find purpose. I want to find meaning. You know, maybe I, I don't start out belonging to organized religion, but, but I'm looking for truth. I'm looking for spirituality. I'm looking for a way forward. And what's amazing in our text today, what's amazing is that Jesus shows us how to live relationally. Because so often, 
our default is this idea of what's in it for me. I want to give that a word. We live transactionally. Hey, what can I get out of this? You know, I, I've, how can I network? How can I get the best deal? If you ever watch Pawn Stars, Rick Harrison is the best negotiator ever, right? That guy, like, you could have Mother Teresa walk in, he could probably get a good deal from her. He's amazing. That's, and, and that's great in the show. But so often we can live like that. What's in it for me? How do I get the best deal in our marriages, in our parenting, with children, with other Christians? We look at things and we just treat things transactionally. And why is that? Last week we looked at a theological point that is called the hypostatic union. And you're like, oh, what is this? Okay, ready? Remember how we talked about how Jesus is fully God and fully human? Okay? This week, we're going to talk about something very briefly about this that ties into this. It's called original sin. Original sin is simply this idea. I won't go super deep. I'll keep it very basic. We were created for relationship with God. We were created for relationship with creation. If you remember, Adam has this opportunity in the garden to name all the animals. We don't name things that we don't have relationship in. Last I checked... We name our pet, we name our children, we don't name things that we have nothing to do with. The squirrel, just walking around our neighborhood, we don't name the squirrel because we don't have a relationship with it. Also, we were created to have relationship with each other. You see that immediately Adam is alone, and so God creates Eve. But original sin happens. Rather than looking at this and saying, we're in this together, thank you, God. It's so amazing to be in this paradise, amazing to be in this place where everything is good. Instead, immediately they looked over and transactionally saw this tree. And in this tree, there was some fruit. And maybe the fruit was delicious looking. Maybe the fruit was just representing knowledge of good and evil. But they grabbed the fruit, said, what's in it for me? You know what happened? What was in it for them? Sin. A lot of pain, a lot of frustration, and welcome. That's what we've inherited. So that is the theological context we live in. But Jesus shows us not to live transactionally. If you look at the way, we read a whole long thing in Mark chapter 10. He didn't sit there and look for the best deal and barter and negotiate. He's living relationally, and he's showing us how to relive relationally. Because look at the difference. Transactionally is what's in it for me, but relationally is this idea that we are in this together. We're created by God to have relationship with Him, to love Him, to have relationship together. We're in this together. And we have that opportunity because in this text, what do we see Jesus is? Jesus lives relationally and asks all who follow Him to do the same. One of the unique things we have as the opportunity as Jesus followers is to say, hey, I don't need to see the best deal I can get out of this person. I can just care for them and say, hey, it's great to talk to you. So glad to see you. So glad to be here. I don't have to sit and, and with my parenting say, you know what is going to work? If I can get Henry to be a professional baseball player, I'll be able to retire at 50 and my life is going to be great. That's not Christian parenting. It's not seeing what I can get out of my kid. It's not, see, it's not saying, hey, I'm married. You know it would be great if my spouse would simply just turn my house into a luxury resort 
and that would be great. I would go there, and there would be manicure, pedicure. There would be uh, five-star dining, and all I have to do is walk in, and it's all, that's not what a marriage is, right? Jesus shows us to live relationally, not transactionally. And that's our one point today. I'm going to throw this up. Here is our one point. You have a handout. The handout has one point. There's not three points. You're used to three points at this church. One point. One point. Jesus invites me to live relationally, not transactionally. In fact, I'm going to be obnoxious. We're going to read this together. Ready? Jesus invites me to live relationally, not transactionally. Now, you thought you were getting a short message, but look at my, look at my way I'm going to subvert that. Watch this. It's a trick. Look at this. There's not going to be three contexts. There's going to be five contexts. Look at our five contexts really quick. There, I got you. You thought it was a 17-minute message. We're going to look at five contexts in this chapter really quick-ish. Marriage. Now, you may say, I'm not married. That's okay. Five contexts. You don't have to have every single one apply. The first one may not apply to everyone. The other four are going to apply to everybody. We're going to look at how I can live relationally, not transactionally in a marriage. Then, how I can live relationally, not transactionally with children. Notice I didn't say as a parent or grandparent. I said with children. Look around the room. There's some kids still in here, not in the nursery. We all have children in our lives. Maybe it's just that peripheral that there's a couple kids in the sanctuary. Maybe you directly have kids in your life. Either way, it's very clear. Jesus makes it very, very clear. We're to have relationship with children to be kind, to teach them, to live alongside them, and to understand that they get faith better than we do. We'll talk about that later. Another context is with God. That can apply to all of us. With Christians, you're in a room with Christians. Look around. Everybody look around for a second. If you're joining us on your live stream, you're going to see there's a number. It's going to say X, 17, 15, whatever that is. That's a number of Christians watching. We are here together Jesus invites me to live relationally, not transactionally, with Christians and also in our community. Whether you live in Plymouth, whether you live in Carver, whether you're one of those people because you have the Manomet Post Office, you think you don't live in, or Pine Hills is the same way, right? You know those Pine Hills people, how they always want to have their new town? You know what I mean. There's your community, right? So either way, one point for today, we're going to repeat it, that Jesus invites, ending with transactionally, ready? Jesus invites me to live relationally, not transactionally. All right, let's get started. Context number one is marriage. Okay. We have this first part of this text. Jesus, once again, has the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? They are the people who have all the degrees and all the knowledge and all the learning and all the hypocrisy. And they say, Jesus, we're going to get you. We got you this time. Guilty as charged. No more Jesus. Bye-bye because you cannot handle the marriage question. Here it comes. Divorce. It's a conversation that still makes us uncomfortable in 2022. And they say, Jesus, we got you. But what does Jesus do? When the Pharisees try to trap him, Jesus encourages us to live relationally. The two became one. Let no one tear that apart. And look at your hearts. Let's look at the text here. I'm going to pull out just a little bit of text on each of these. I encourage you to go back and look at the whole text. Jesus responded. This is verse 5. He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made the male and female from the beginning of creation. Jesus immediately goes to the heart thing. Because the heart thing is the relational question. If you're having a hard heart, and I've had this, we've all had this, where we get 
frustrated and we get crusty and we get rigid and our heart is hardened and we can't look at things just openly. We don't have this open posture where we're like, in, in school, one of the things they teach us as special ed teachers, I'm a special ed teacher too, they teach us to have an open posture when we talk to people. Because one of the things we know is that body language can really determine how people view us. So I, I've been literally trained, I've spent countless hours being trained to stand like this. I'm not kidding. But our hearts can do the same thing. If we're living with hard hearts, with that, that posture of the heart like this, not a lot good happens. We start living transactionally. We start saying, what's in it for me, instead of we're all in this together. Marriage is not a trade of goods and services. Yes, there are things in the marriage that are unique roles. Of course, I didn't give birth, right? Okay, sorry, I'm going to throw that on the table. However, the reality is it's supposed to be a covenantal relationship, not a trade of, of goods and services. And you can say, well, yeah, but that's a, a Bible thing. The, the world doesn't agree with that. Actually, on this one, Here's interesting, another article from this past week. Anybody read The Atlantic? I've, the Atlantic? I like The Atlantic. Anybody read The Atlantic? I read The New York Times and The Atlantic. I don't have a subscription. If anyone wants to gift that to me for Christmas, for pastor appreciation for Christmas, I would love subscription to The Atlantic. Shameless plug. But here's, here's what the article was. Oh, I'm not kidding. I love, I, I love The Atlantic. Okay. This guy, Arthur Brooks, wrote an article this past week, and I love this. Marriage is a team sport, not a competition. So often, in a marriage, we can feel like competing with our spouse, winning and losing and getting the upper hand, and now it's all going to work. And Arthur Brooks says that, that's the wrong way to look at a marriage. Marriage isn't about competing against each other, it's competing with each other against the other forces. Think of yourself as synchronized swimmers together. Think of yourselves as rugby players together. You can do any, any analogy you want on that. Here's what he says. Small things such as who unloads the dishwasher can become a contentious issue of fairness. When one partner earns more money than the other, it can stimulate rivalry even between people in love. And that's culture telling us. And Jesus agrees. Jesus agrees with that one. Marriage is a partnership. It's not a transactional thing. So we're in this together. Hey, hey honey, I love you. We, we, got, we stood up. We had marriage vows publicly. That doesn't mean things are perfect. That doesn't mean that everything goes swimmingly. And so here is my question for each of us. If you find yourself in a marriage, are you asking, what's in it for me? Or are you being relational? Are you saying, hey, we're in this together. Marriage is a team sport. All right, context two. So, the text continues, and it talks about with children. So now we have this opportunity where Jesus is continuing, and these parents bring their children to Jesus because they want Jesus to lay hands on them and, and pray with them. Now, I agree. By the way, if Jesus walked in the room, people often say, what would you do if Jesus walked in the room? I think the first thing I would do is I would turn my mic off, run to the nursery, grab my two kids, and be like, Jesus, please pray for my children, like immediately. Let's do this, Okay. But what happens? The disciples, remember how I like to call them the knuckleheads? Oh, we love the disciples. Oh, they're so good. Okay. The disciples are like, oh, Jesus. He shoes them away. No, Jesus, you're too busy. Jesus, we can't do this. No, Jesus, you've got to do your teaching. You've got to do your ministry. You're, you're doing this prophecy thing about death, burial, resurrection. We don't get it. But like, you need to do all that stuff. You can't, can't take your time for children. 
No, 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 no. Jesus encourages the disciples to live relationally with children and us to do the same thing. Look at verse 13. So we're jumping a little in this text, but here it is. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch them and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with the disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Jesus once again points to a heart issue. Children are uncorrupted and innocent. Yeah, they don't know everything. But have you ever seen the faith of a three- or four-year-old who loves Jesus? They love Jesus in a way your pastors are not able to, right? We've got all this other thinking and all this other lived experience and all these things that get in the way, and we create all these other things. Little kid, like if you say, if you say to a little kid like Ruby, Ruby's three years old. She has no theological understanding. But when it's time to pray, she prays. When there's sick people, she knows we pray for sick people. When there's a new baby, she knows we pray for the new baby. She doesn't get why. She just has faith. She just believes, and she just loves Jesus. She doesn't even get what it totally means to love Jesus, and that doesn't even matter. She has an innocent child faith, and Jesus makes it clear that's what we should have. And therefore, with the children with us, we're in this together. We have this great opportunity. We did a dedication today. We have an opportunity. We're not going to raise the two little girls, okay? The parents of the two little girls are sitting over there. I'm not the parents of the two little girls. But we have an opportunity to not be a bunch of knuckleheads like the disciples and get in the way of the children knowing Jesus. That's what we have the opportunity to. I want to talk to you about Snapple. Anybody like Snapple? The last time I had Snapple was a couple years ago. And we had a day where a few of us, it was in the time where we had shut down and we had skeleton crews had to run the worship service. Billy's laughing, you know the story. Here we go. Okay. And so we thought, some of us were here, and thank you, you, you know who you are. Thank you for being here. We were very limited on who we were allowed to have. It was really three families. And because we, we followed all the rules and regulations. And so there are only a few of us that were allowed to be here. And we all followed all the masks and the social distancing and things. And we were installing those cameras, and, and it was really helpful. And so we said, hey, we're going to, it's a Saturday. We got a, a church service tomorrow. We got all this new equipment. We're just going to get here for like an hour and a half, maybe two at the most, right? And you know what we're going to do? It's going to go really smooth. We're going to play Waymaker because that was a song we sang every single service in the pandemic. And it's going to be swimmingly. It's going to be great. Eight and a half hours later, I think we were finally done. And you know the problem? The only food that anyone brought, I don't know why, no one thought to bring any food, but there was a six-pack of Snapple. And I had two Snapples. I don't know why I didn't share, but I had two Snapples. And you know what during those two Snapples we talked about? Everything. We talked about parenting. We talked about, you know, kind of the future. We talked about a lot of movies, lots of movies. Um, we talked about all sorts of things, and we made a Snapple covenant. Maybe you don't even know we made this covenant, but we didn't. I refer to it as a Snapple covenant. Here's what we said. At the time, I was thinking of spending way too much money on a keyboard, which was a dumb idea, but oops, there it is. Okay, I'm serious, okay? That, you don't want to know what I paid for that. It's, it's a Nord. It's the same thing like Taylor Swift's piano player uses. I'm not kidding. Okay, but here's the point. We've got little kids. I've got a little kid. Billy's got a little kid. There's little kids here. One of the reasons I love the church is because people were never weird about me wanting to go play the organ or the piano. 
And we had this Snapple covenant where we said, hey, you know what? The reality is, is that we've got nice guitars and nice keyboards, and if the kids break them, the kids break them. Oh, well, Jesus is more important. Being comfortable in church is more important. Sometimes you'll see that we'll have kids kind of in the pews and being a little loud. We want them to be a little loud. I want my sermon to be disrupted. With kids, we love the kids. We, as a church, leaders and also the church in general has said, we don't care about that barrier. We're going to put that down. Kids can be loud. Kids can be here. We want them to. You want to climb on the keyboard and play Paw Patrol at the end? So that when I have a prayer service and I try to do all that, all the sounds are weird and they take a bunch of time to change it all because my kids have monkeyed with all the things. Great. We're so glad that the kids are in church. All of us have the opportunity to take down the barriers with children in our lives. Are you willing to acknowledge that there's kids who you have an opportunity, maybe not to parent, maybe, but maybe to say, hey, I love Jesus. Here's a way to, here's a way to follow Jesus. Are you willing to be the model for children in your family, in your community, in this church, in your neighborhood? There's context two. Context three is simple. Context three is, is really simple. Here's God, right? A rich young man asked Jesus what he needs to do to go to heaven. We'll get into that in a second. And Jesus makes it clear once again. We've got to stop holding on to stuff. We've got we to stop, stop being all into all these things and making them more important. We need to let go of things and live for Jesus and live for God. Here's what happens in verse 17, as Jesus was starting on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this sounds like a really nice question, doesn't it? The problem is, is the young man has the kind of mindset we often have, a little bit of the wrong mindset. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Not hey, Jesus, I love God. How do I live out my love for God in my life? Not, hey, Jesus, how do I be sincere and live a life of faith? How do I earn salvation? How do I earn heaven is the question. The challenge with that is that's transactional. That's like, I'm this person, and God's got this cool place with the old song says streets of gold. I don't know if it's got streets of gold, but the old song says it. I'm not going to argue with the old song. Okay, so... I'm here, God's got this place with streets of gold, so what do I do to negotiate to get my way there? That's not, that's not the, faith, the Christian faith, right? That's not what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean saying, what's in it for me? How do I get heaven? It's saying, hey, I have an opportunity to follow God in my life, to live differently, and to put my trust in Him. Here's my question. Because it comes down to our heart. Have you given God your heart? And I'm not just talking about a born-again experience. What I'm saying is, I'm, of course, I'm, I'm talking about giving your life to Jesus, yes. But I'm also talking about, let's say that you followed Jesus 30 years ago, or 10 years ago, or two months ago, it doesn't matter. You followed Jesus, and now you're here. And now it's easy to get comfortable like that rich young man, right? Now it's easy to say, yeah, I mean, like, I love Jesus. I do. Um, and, I, and I fit him in into my devotional time in the morning. And I fit him into family dinner time. And, and I fit him into the Bible app I do um, at my lunch break. And I fit him into my small group. But you know, the rest of that time is just kind of for me. Have you said, like, 
hey, my life is God's. It's so cool I get to do it. So cool I get to live here. But all of this is for God. Not just the time that's carved out. All of it's for God. My time driving is for God. My time at work is for God. My time with my spouse. All of it. That's my question for you. Because if you're sitting there, kind of having everything else get in the way like that rich young man, that's very limiting. There's a lot more to following Jesus than simply penciling Him into a couple hours each week. If you really just say, hey, I want to live and let Jesus be the center of my life, things really change. And I invite you to think about that. Because our one point is Jesus invites me to live relationally with God, not transactionally. Context number four. Here's another one for everyone. With Christians. Okay. So now we get to this part where James and John have their ask. Anybody ever get to know the boss and you have a really good relationship and now you go to the boss's office and you say, boss, I have an ask for you. Anybody ever have that as experience? Okay, here's what they do. Hey, uh, Jesus, you're going to be in a glorious throne. I totally buy into that. Let's have seats for each of us on the side of you. Does that sound good? What does Jesus do as a redirection? Because that's transactional. That's what's in it for me. Jesus says, hey, live relationally. Serve humbly. You want to lead? Serve. You want to be important? Be unimportant and just totally available. You want to have power? Show up first. Stay last. Clean up everybody's trash. Hey, you want to be respected and listened to? Serve. Look at what the text says. We're going to jump to verse 41. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Among you will be different because you'll live a different way with a heart of service. Remember we talked about that posture? How we can often kind of live a, our heart postures like this? The openness and saying, hey, I'm not here for me. I'm not here so that everyone will pat me on the back and say, hey, good job, David, gospel of David. I'm here for service. I'm here to pray with people. I'm here for us to read the Bible together and to be honest about the times that there's things in there that we can really apply to our lives and say, wow, this is going to make a big difference. With Christians, we're not here to lord our power and status over everybody else. We're here to do life together. We're here to make friends. We're here to have silly conversations about movies. We're here to have silly conversations about whatever we want. We're here to, to come together on Tuesday night, shameless plug, ready to see Jared Weiss and have pizza and to come together and to ask what really help, happened with Celtics Blank on, on this and here we go. Because with Christians, we're not called to now have new status and now imitate our culture and just lord it over everyone and do the same things we get frustrated with life with outside of the church. With Christians, we're supposed to serve each other to live differently. And so here's my question. Who are you serving today? I didn't say, are you serving? I said, who are you serving? Right now it's 11.09, unless you're watching this asynchronously, at which point it's whatever time it is. Okay. Message is going to go a couple more minutes. After that, you're going to have an afternoon. 
Tomorrow is not the day to serve. Today is the day to serve. There's going to be opportunities to serve immediately. There may be lunch. Do the dishes. There may be vacuuming that you don't want to do, that if you leave to your spouse, your spouse will do it. But you could just do it for your spouse. Not, not to, like, win them over or something, just because you love them. Just do it for... You know what happens every time I'm stressed? A pot or cup of tea appears. I get stressed a lot. So, like, almost every day we're, like, running that dishwasher with the pot of tea because Laura knows that when I'm stressed, a cup of tea helps. It gets me breathing a little bit, and especially the honey, and I calm down. And her serving me like that really makes a big difference. You know what else we try to do? When one of us gets home first and has the kids, we try to meet, we try to meet the other one in the driveway with the kids and have the kids all wave. It's just a tiny little thing. We can serve each other in our workplace. We have a million opportunities to serve. Tomorrow is Monday, unless you're watching this asynchronously. Tomorrow is Monday. Bring your boss a muffin. You have a difficult boss, bring them a muffin. They don't, they're gluten-free, bring them a gluten-free muffin. Okay, I'm serious. How often is my suggestion, Laura, to bring someone a muffin? Very often, always, right? Serve, right? This is what we're called to do as Christians. Serve, 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 and that brings us to our community. Here's our fifth and final context. We can serve in our community. Look at this. Now Jesus continues on the road, and he's going, and he's made it clear what he's doing. Death, burial, resurrection, right? It's all happening. It's all coming. But there's people on the way because people matter to Jesus. You, you matter to Jesus. Do you know that? You matter to Jesus. Each of you do. I pointed to one person. You matter to Jesus, okay? Jesus cares about the people on the outskirts. There are people in our society that we have a really hard time with, that other people have a really hard time with, and they still matter to Jesus. There's people who maybe you're an employer and you fired someone from work. That person matters to Jesus. You may have an ex, wife, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend. That person matters to Jesus. People matter to Jesus. Our community matters to Jesus. Look at verse 47. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet. Many of the people yelled at him, but he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. A blind, homeless beggar had no social standing in society. There was nothing transactionally he could do. So if you're looking at what's in it for me, there was nothing in it for Jesus to give this guy any attention. There are people in your life that there's no strategic value reaching out to them. That's a pretty good sign that you should reach out to them. There's people in your life that others will scoff at you for reaching out to. How can you lower yourself and, and care for that person? That's a pretty good sign that you should reach out to that person. There are people in your life who are invisible, who other people don't even know are there. And you're the only person who seems to even know that they exist. That's a really good sign you should reach out to them, for each of us. Jesus invites me to live relationally in my community. I think of, there's a great 19th century Scottish pastor. Anybody know Thomas Chalmers? Look at that. Okay, you're about to learn something new. Even Reverend Cushing has his hand down back there. I don't know if he's playing along, but here we go. Thomas Chalmers was a 19th century Scottish pastor who had it figured out. He was going to do, have you ever heard of the four-day work week? He was going to do the two-day work week. 
He was getting all the business of the church done in two days, and he could do anything he wanted. He had all sorts of interests. He loved economics. So he wanted to read and, and do all the supplied economic stuff on his days off, which of there were many. Then he got really, uh, by the way, his ministry was like going down in flames. Like people did not like the two-day work week. Okay, so FYI. So, sorry. If, if you've got a two-day work week and that works for you, I mean, by all means. I'm not judging that. I'm talking about Thomas Chalmers. Now, he got really sick. And he had, I'm going to use a phrase that you'll say that doesn't make sense, he was a pastor. He had a conversion experience where he went from being rigid and legalistic to saying, Jesus, I love you. I want to stop being a knucklehead. Okay, like, I want to give my heart to you. I want to actually live for you and let, let my let living for you apply to all parts of my life. And he divided his, now, it's the 19th century, so everybody went to church. He had 10,000 people in his parish. And he divided them up into zones. And he said, you know, we're going to make sure that over here they get this help and over here they do this. And it was effective, but people scoffed at him for it. And people thought it was ridiculous. I can't believe this. You're lowering the church. You're actually misusing the pulpit because you're caring for your community. What are you doing? That's not what you're supposed to do. And at the time, he was maligned for it. And eventually, he basically gets kicked out of his denomination because of it. But then... Because of his work, they plant hundreds of churches, and they establish a new type of church in Scotland because he understood that God wants me to live relationally. We're all in this together, not, not what's in it for me. I don't have to have the two-day work week. I don't have to have the power and prestige and everyone agree with me that I'm doing the right thing. If I'm serving the community and everybody disagrees, well, good, you can, you can take that up with Jesus, and I'm going to keep serving the community. And so that takes us to the elephant in the room. Because we're a few days ahead of what holiday? What holiday is coming up next is the game we play in my house. We always do what birthday is coming up next. Now, today is my mother's birthday. Happy birthday. What holiday is coming up next? Thanksgiving. Okay. I often feel like Thanksgiving, we should call it the Thanksgiving problem or the Thanksgiving question. Here's why. It feels like our culture has destroyed every holiday except for Thanksgiving. Anybody ever feel like that? Except we destroy it. Except, you know what we do at the Thanksgiving dinner table? It's way back here. you got to strain your neck. Okay. So you know what we do at the Thanksgiving dinner table? We fight. We live transactionally. We think this is the opportunity. I've got everybody all together, and I'm going to make a difference this year. They're going to listen to me. I'm going to bring up this heated, contentious subject, and they can't leave because we're in a spirit of gratitude. And we're grateful, you know what we're especially grateful for this year? For my right opinion. Thank you, Jesus, for my right opinion. And so because of that, you're going to listen while I pontificate and I make it clear everything that you're doing wrong. And if you come with me to church and you give your life to Jesus and do the sinner's prayer and I hit you over the head with the Bible enough times, I'm not going to find you annoying anymore. And you know what happens at the Thanksgiving dinner table? It gets weird. I polled members of our congregation, and I asked people, I said, hey, have you ever had a, ever in your life, have you ever had a blow up at the Thanksgiving dinner table? Of the people I asked, which there were many, only one person said no. I offered, I said, you know, thousand bucks an hour, um, we can have you be a mediator that will bring to Thanksgiving dinner tables, and you can literally sit there and keep everybody from fighting. But the reality is, and I bring this up, because we have an opportunity to live relationally with one another. If we're just trying to figure out what's in it for me, 
we get frustration. We get, we get all sorts of weird things at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Thanksgiving is coming. This year, I invite you, we have the opportunity to not be weird about stuff, to not sit and say, this is my year to finally convince you of my right opinion, but to say, hey, you know what? I'm so glad you're at Thanksgiving. It was fun watching the parade. It's, you know, we're going to eat our food and we're going to have a nice time. I'm grateful for you. I'm not asking anything. So glad to see you. We don't see each other enough. Let's get together sometime before Christmas too. And so our big point for today is this. One point, five context. Let's go to the next slide. Here's our big point. We are invited. Jesus invites me to live relationally, not transactionally. And we have an opportunity at the end of each service, and I'm going to invite the elders forward. Some of the elders are going to come forward. We're going to have an opportunity to pray together. If you are struggling, we're going to keep it really simple. If you're struggling with relationships in any way, we're going to invite you to come forward and have prayer. It could be relationship with your spouse, with your coworker, with God, with children, with Christians, with your community. It could be relationships ahead of the Thanksgiving dinner table. If you, at any way, are struggling with a relationship, we want to pray for you. We invite you to come forward because we know that we're invited to live relationally, saying we are all in this together, united with Jesus. I'm not trying to say what's in it for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time. We ask that you remind us of the importance of growing together in relationships. In Jesus' name, amen.